Why did God the Father send his Son into the world? Well, this is number four in a series which seeks to answer that question by listening to the things that Jesus himself said. In Mark chapter 2, verse 17, this is what we read. Jesus speaking. Those who are well have no need of a, phys- of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The message of the gospel frequently comes across as being confrontational. You can't really remain true to the gospel and avoid it. Actually, it's impossible. And someone might say, well, just don't be confrontational. Find a more gentle way of putting things. The problem is, that's a little bit like asking a surgeon to find a less drastic way of amputating a limb. It's like saying to, to him, well, I can see it needs to come off, but can't you do it in such a way that it'll still be there afterwards? You just can't talk about things like that in that way. And the gospel is a bit like that. There's an element to it which many find deeply offensive, even repugnant. And there's no way of dressing it up or softening the blow. And we know this because even Jesus had the same issue as he preached. You may like to perhaps conjure up images in your mind of Jesus serenely gliding through the Holy Land, being welcomed with open arms by all, uh, causing this great tide of peace and tranquility uh, to roll across the land in his wake. The reality was that everywhere he went, there were groups of people seething with rage and even plotting to kill him. And many who gave the appearance of having accepted his message would actually prove to be false believers and would turn away. Read verse 66 of John chapter 6 and you'll see it recorded there. Christ's earthly ministry was hard work. Frequently it was filled with disappointments and frustration and it was constantly, fiercely opposed. And who are we to suppose that we deserve any better today? Not that it can't still be filled with great joy. One of the issues which produced much of the grief for Jesus and later for the apostles and for us today It was the uncompromising stand that Jesus took on the issue of sin and the necessity of repentance. Nothing's changed in that regard. And so gospel churches, gospel preaching, gospel people cannot back down or compromise on the message of sin and repentance. We don't make it our goal to upset and offend and annoy people. But we know that that which which is our goal will frequently upset and offend and annoy people, just as it did in the New Testament. Why? Well, because in our sinful state, the last thing that we want to hear is the truth about our sinful state. And in our pride, 
the last thing that we want is the truth which most wounds our pride. And that's where the gospel, if it's the biblical gospel that you preach, that's where the gospel will so often appear to be confrontational. It truly does clash with the sinful nature. Jesus said, I have come to call sinners to repentance. Now, there's no way of reinterpreting that and there's no way of skirting around it. Jesus makes it plain that if anyone is going to respond to the call of the gospel, that response will require them to confess their sin and to repent of it, to turn around and forsake it and go a different path. And if their response lacks those things, then surely their apparent response is false. Now, they may not know or use some of these words. They might not use the word repent. Well, that's okay. It's the truth and the principle of it that's the important thing. And as long as that is in evidence, as long as it's been done, then we, we don't mind too much about what words people use necessarily. So let's have a think about this message that Jesus gave. I have come to call sinners to repentance. And why is this such a difficult message for people to accept and grasp? Well, first of all, the Bible teaches that all are sinners, but most think that they are not sinful enough to need a saviour. There is none righteous, declares the Bible. That's a fairly emphatic statement. But the world wants to raise its hand like an overenthusiastic child in the classroom. But me, what about me? No, not one is righteous, insists God's word. No one is good, but one. That is God. All our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Well, that's just a brief selection of the many verses we could turn to and hear this same message being repeated. Now, most level-headed people would find it rather strange if someone tried to claim that they have lived a morally perfect life, totally upright in every way. Anyone claiming that would usually receive a sideways glance. But if you talk to people you'll discover that most would rate themselves to be at least an average level of good, probably actually just a little bit above, definitely not a terrible person. Talk to them about the Bible's teaching on sin, and if they can be persuaded to 
believe that such a thing exists at all, well, it's just the really terrible people who fall into that sinful category. And of course, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, the really terrible people will always be, well, at least several rungs uh, down the ladder below me. Now, in Jesus' day, uh, people with that kind of response were typified by the scribes and the Pharisees. They were members of the religious elite in Jewish society, and they believed and trusted in their, their own goodness and self-righteousness. For them, it was accomplished through uh, fastidious religious law-keeping. Now, you may use something completely different as the means of measuring or judging yourself. But most of us operate along a similar kind of principle. And although it was in public, it was primarily the scribes and the Pharisees who confronted Jesus and who, and it was them who Jesus himself confronted. I'm absolutely certain that there were probably many in those crowds who were not scribes, who were not Pharisees. And they were listening along and just the ordinary folk in Galilee and Judea. But really their hearts were exactly the same. I can imagine lots of them listening to the conversations that went back and forward between Jesus and the Pharisees. And many of the ordinary people thinking, well, I can't claim the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees claim. But I'm still a very good and decent person, really. I go to synagogue every Sabbath, I give my tithes and offerings, I make the journey to Jerusalem a few times a year for the, for the big religious festivals. When Jesus talks about repentance, he surely can't be talking about the likes of me. Surely the Pharisees have it right when they say it's people like the tax collectors and certain men and women of ill repute who need to be doing the repenting. Even though many were struck by his miracles, many were struck by the, the command of authority with which Jesus spoke. They never actually heeded his preaching. They never did repent of their sins. The gospel records and the acts of the apostles bear out that after the death of Jesus, those who had become his disciples and who were still loyal to Christ, they could be counted in their hundreds rather than thousands. And John really does record in chapter 6 verse 66 that many who had given the impression of being followers eventually turned away. One thing they'd not experienced or known for themselves was true repentance. They hadn't heeded that call of Christ to repent of their sins. And that's often the response today. 
because we find secondly that many in their pride and hardness of heart will never hear Christ's voice. Not the way they need to. Not in the way that God requires. And not producing the actual response that Jesus calls us to. We've seen on recent Sundays that in our sins we are held, we are bound, we're captive, we're blind and we're held in unbelief. And the call to repent is dismissed. Because most people just don't think they need to. Those who are well have no need of a physician, said Jesus. It's those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that there are people who are sufficiently righteous that they don't need to repent. The gospel message which Christ gave to the Apostle Paul is that God calls all men everywhere to repent. Jesus isn't teaching or suggesting that there are people who have no need of spiritual healing. What he's saying is that the people who go to the doctor go to the doctor because they know they have a problem. Well, some are hypochondriacs and there's nothing wrong with them. Talk to Simona or Ellie, they'll tell you about them. But you understand what's meant here. You find that you begin to exhibit certain symptoms and you know that those symptoms mean that there is something not right. And so you take yourself off to see your GP. You know you're not well. And so you go to the one who you know can help you. But if you have no symptoms, if you think you're okay, you don't bother going. And in our sinfulness, we don't see the symptoms or we don't see the symptoms as being a problem. Our, our hardened, proud hearts simply refuse to accept it. There's nothing wrong with me, we say. And we think we're fine. So I have no need of this repentance of which Jesus speaks. I hear what you're saying when you talk about these things as you share the gospel. But that's not me you're talking about. They can't see the symptoms for what they are. And they justify their own assessment of themselves. I'm just not that bad. If it feels right and if everyone else is doing it, it must be okay. I'm not harming anyone. These are just your opinions. That's just one way of looking at it. I see it like this. The context of this verse that we're quoting from Mark chapter 2 is quite interesting. Levi, the tax collector, we, we come to know him as Matthew, one of the 12 disciples, uh, he of the Gospel of Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament. He's just being called by Jesus to follow him and he immediately does. And Jesus goes, goes to Levi's house and Levi invites uh, loads of his tax collector friends for a meal with Jesus there. And lots of other people of rather dubious character, or at least that's how the scribes and Pharisees consider them. 
This is what we read. When the scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And perhaps we can imagine the scribes and Pharisees saying to themselves, well, okay then, if these are the type of people that Jesus has come for, he hasn't come for us. And that just proves that we don't need him. There are lots of people just like that today. I wonder if you're one of them. Convinced that you don't need a saviour. Just like someone who's convinced themselves that they have no need of a doctor because they think they're perfectly well. When in fact, they are terminally ill. The issue of sin in many ways boils down to one thing. Who are you sinning against? There is in heaven the eternal God, the creator, the one who reigns over all things because all things are his, including you. That's why in times of crisis, there's something inside you which instinctively knows that there is a God upon whom you would do well to call. This God reigns in perfect purity and goodness and righteousness and peace. In complete contrast to the ills and evils of the world in which you live. God permits us to pursue our sinful ways, our pride, our greed, our lusts, our jealousies. He permits us to act to act in vengeance and spite and malice. He permits us to abuse and exploit and injure one another. He permits the ravages of illness and frailty and hatred and warfare to afflict us. He's not the author of these things. Everything that is wrong with this fallen world is the fallout from our own fallen and sinful nature. He is nevertheless sovereign over his world. And in his eternal decree, he permits and uses our own sinfulness for his purposes in the world. But the sinfulness is ours. The wickedness is ours. The evil is ours. And it is we who inflict these things upon ourselves as much as we'd like to try and blame God for it. When you lose loved ones, there's something inside you which tells you there's a better place than this. And you hope your loved ones are there. And you're right, there is a better place. It's the dwelling place of God. And at the heart of your sin 
is your heart which has rejected God and abandoned his ways. In your pride, you think that those things which seem right in your own eyes, God has no business interfering with. And if he won't back your agenda, then frankly, God can sling his hook. That, that is the heart of sin. That right there is what sin is. Believing that you have no need of God and that you never need to refer to him. Although it would be nice if he came to your rescue every now and again when you get yourself in a bit of a fix. But, but that attitude of heart is what lies at the heart of sin even before you begin to look at what your life actually looks like and how you actually live. That heart attitude towards God lies at the heart of our sinfulness. And you trample God underfoot as an irrelevance. And that right there is the most vile of sins in his eyes. To think that way about him. Or to just not think about him. In Psalm 51 we find a famous prayer of King David. He's on his knees before God. He's a broken man. He's confessing his sin. And he says something very noteworthy. Addressing God directly. David says against you. You only have I sinned. David understands that his sins are a matter between him and God. Your sin is an issue between you and God. And it is God who will one day settle the issue. You have no thought for him. You never thank him. You trust in yourself instead of him. You worship created things rather than the creator. You raise up idols in your life to take the place which God should have. Have you not seen football fans in their places of worship, worshipping their idols? Have you not seen music fans in their places of worship, worshipping their idols as the music blares? People in their homes, on their holidays, reviewing their bank accounts, worshipping their idols. Have you seen the love and devotion such things receive? Did you see the outpouring of grief in Argentina over a man who happened to be quite good at kicking a football? Three days of national mourning, treating him almost like a deity. While all the time the true and living God who has promised that there will always be seasons and harvests and put foods in their mouths every day features nowhere in their lives. Or you might see the footballer walking onto the pitch at the start of the game and he makes the sign of the cross and then will try every cheat known to man in order to win the game and will curse and swear at the referee when he makes a decision against them. Just pushing God aside, replacing him with earthly things, giving a pretense of worship 
and then abandoning all integrity. And perhaps like so many others, they think they're simply not sinful enough to need a saviour. And in their pride and hardness of heart, they've never heard the call of Christ to repent. Don't be like them. You cannot look upon Christ crucified and think that he didn't need to go that far for you. He knew that he did. And the message that we need to leave with you this morning, the message that all of us need to have impressed upon our hearts again today, is that there is no gospel or salvation without repentance. There's a gloriously simple picture presented by Jesus in the form of a parable. He tells a very short, simple story. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Well, there's the game given away right there. I'm not like other men, so I'm okay. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector, they are far worse than me. So go talk to them about their sin. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And as Jesus mentions at the start of the parable, this Pharisee isn't praying to God at all. He's just praying with himself. But then Jesus turns his attention to the tax collector who is standing far off, who would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, said Jesus, this man, the repentant tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled he who humbles himself will be exalted. I said earlier that God one day will settle with you the issue of your sin. And he will. A day of judgment and reckoning will come. And all will be judged according to their deeds, the Bible tells us. And I have news for you. There's nothing that you have done. There's nothing that you can do which will make up for all the ground that you've lost before God in your sin. All of us have fallen so far short of the mark. So far short. But we'll, we'll be remembering in a few weeks' time that the angels said to the shepherds 
that they had glad tidings of great joy for the whole world. For to you is born a Saviour, who is Christ the Lord. And here is the message of Christmas. That day of settling accounts over sin, God brought it forward and settled it for those who will repent and trust on Christ. He placed upon his own son the guilt of sinners. He meted out upon his own son, Jesus, the punishment that is due to sinners. And as Jesus suffered and bled and died on the cross, accounts were settled in heaven. The sins of King David were settled. The sins of the tax collector were settled. My sins were settled. Those who know they have need of a physician, those who know that before God they are sick in sin, those who will cry out to him for mercy, for grace, for undeserved forgiveness, and who will turn from their sins and trust in Christ. They receive mercy and grace and undeserved forgiveness. The Pharisee decided to stick to his guns. I'm not like other men. His account with God remains unsettled. And one day he's going to discover just how deep his debt is and just how serious God is when it comes to punishing sin. Don't be like him. Confess your sins. Turn from your sins. Do you hear the call of Christ to repent? Run to him today and do it.